Come on in and take a seat. It's good to see you guys this morning. I wanted to start with a, a little different way than we typically do, but um, I wanted to start today with a bit of an apology to you guys, first and foremost. Um, last Sunday in my message, I took a she- cheap shot at, um, at Joel Osteen in a joke, and uh, it was to really got some good cheap laughs out of it, and honestly, as I said it, I felt terrible about it, and um, even as I processed afterwards, I set, kept thinking through that, and I was like, that was horrific. Um, I never want to be that kind of person, that kind of pastor that makes fun of other people, even in disagreement, uh, even in, uh, there is a way to disagree with um, theological views, political views, all kinds of different views um, that maintains the dignity of other people, and I took a cheap shot last week, and I felt terrible about that. I just wanted to come and apologize to you and just say, that's not the kind of pastor I want to be. I don't want to lead that like that, and uh, I hope and pray that we're not a church body that, that functions like that either, that we're not quick to make fun of people or to rip other people down, especially on social media and things like that, and uh, I just did not lead well last week in that and just wanted to ask your forgiveness as I began on that end. So um, the other thing I wanted to come in and talk with you about before we get into everything is that um, there's, a, there's a family here at the church that is in desperate need of our prayers, and if you were on Facebook last night... Uh, on the DVC website, uh, you, you kind of know a little bit of what's going on, but uh, we'll just suffice to say that we need to be praying for uh, baby Elias Fincher, and uh, he is battling for his life this morning, the Fincher family, you guys may know him, know them, Kristen and uh, Christopher, and uh, their whole small group and so many people were there at the hospital with them last night. Uh, we have not received an update, a specific update this morning, but just suffice to say that Baby Elias, is uh, he's battling this morning, and uh, we're not sure exactly how that's going to work out. And uh, I'm going to invite you guys to pray with me. As you guys get into the rest of this week and um, even this afternoon, and you pray together as a family or whatever it may be, I'm going to ask that you would keep them in your, your thoughts and your prayers too because they, they need your encouragement and they need your support. And so um, let me go ahead and pray for that right now, and then we'll get into Colossians here in just a second. But Father, uh, we remember that you are a miracle worker. God, that's what we've been singing all morning long. Uh, Father, we know that that's who you are. There's nothing beyond your power, your ability. And Father, the Finchers need your compassion right now, but they also need your power. We need you to come in and to do what only you can do and to touch baby Elias, Lord, and to bring him health. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name, would you breathe life into him right now. God, that his body would get stronger. God, let let him get stronger. Breathe life into him. God, I pray in Jesus' name that that Christopher and Kristen, Lord, that they would be united together as a family right now. Lord, that they would feel your compassion, your warmth around them, Lord Jesus, as you sustain them and you do everything that Marcy just talked about for them. God, would you surround them? God, would you sustain them today? Um, Be their hands and their feet right now, I pray. Lord, we need your intervention. You ask us to pray these things. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, we know in heaven there's no sickness, there's no disease, there's no sadness, there's no sin. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let that be true right now for the Finchers, I pray. And so, God, we love you and we praise you. And I, I give you these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Um, we're going to get into the text this morning. And uh, I'm going a little out of rhythm and stuff here, but I'm going to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word one time here. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 3, and what I want to do this morning is I want to go back to a section that we were actually in last week. And I'm going to remind you that 
The reason we've been having you stand for the reading of God's word, this is, a, this is a thing that the early church did in reverence for God's word and recognition. We have God's divinely inspired word. He's not far away. He's not distant. He has made himself known to us, and it's a joy and a privilege to have it. And so we come um, fully submitted to God and his word. And so uh, if you'll just follow along with me, I'm going to rehash this passage, and then we're going to get into it today. Colossians chapter 3, verses 11 through 17. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and he is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with one another, forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. And over all these other virtues, would you put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, church, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father, through him. Father, we do honor you this morning and one more time. We just want to say that we gladly surrender to you in all things. We recognize that you alone are the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. You alone sit on a throne. You alone spoke the world into existence. You alone gave, gave every man, woman, and child dignity and value as image bearers of God. You alone set your love upon us and that you sent your one and only son, Jesus, to come and to die for us. Father, we give you gladly all the praise, glory, and honor that you're due. And so, Lord, would you teach us? We need your Holy Spirit to shape us into your image and to do these things that the text has talked about. And so, Father, we surrender to you in all these things. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. You guys can go ahead and take a seat. I'll just tell you that all week long as I've been studying this passage, uh, my overwhelming conviction in this whole section is that this section has to be true of us, Right? And it's not that any other passage doesn't have to be true of us, but I'm looking at these qualities, and I'm looking at this, at, this, at, this, at this command here to put on love, not just talk about love, but to actually put on love, things like compassion and gentleness and patience and all these different kinds of things. And church, all I want to say this morning is that this has to become true of us today. This can't be one of these passages and one of these sermons that you listen to, and you go to Luby's, you forget about it in the afternoon, and then nothing actually changes in the process. We have to be a people that not just talk about love, but we actually do the actions of love. And so that's what this is going to be about uh, this morning. This past week, I was reading this article. Um, it was really talking about the credibility crisis that's going on in America today. And I was just essentially specifically talking about a lot of the institutional crisis and how a lot of us don't have trust in our institutions today like we did in years past. And you're looking at this list and you're going, oh, this is absolutely true. But you think about this. I mean, honestly, like what institutions culturally around you today can you actually say, hey, I have profound amount of trust and confidence in this particular institution over here? I mean, honestly, uh, media? Would you say that you, hey, you got profound confidence? Media is always going to be telling you the truth, right? Uh, I, I, I mean, can you honestly say that, that hey, fake news isn't a real thing? Like that's just made up everywhere, right? I mean, I mean media, that's a ma major, major part of it. Are politicians? Government, right? 30% of those who were polled said that they actually have confidence that our government's always going to do what's right and not just what's best for them, <laughs> right? Um, criminal justice system, confidence there, profound credibility in years past, and it's still always been there, but can you honestly say that there's not anything that's been taken, that there's not any hits along the, on the, along the way? Marriage is a big one. 
marriage and family, our, con- our confidence in that institution. It's talking about how people today are putting off marriage longer than ever before. We're waiting until our early 30s, largely because, hey, we don't have a whole lot of confidence that it's actually going to work out. I don't know that I'm going to find the one, right, that Disney told me about that's going to make me happy and secure the rest of my life, right? Uh, we're not, we don't have a whole lot of confidence in that anymore. We're delaying it longer and longer. And then when we do, we're not, a whole, we're not very confident that it's actually going to last or that we're going to be happy in it. And so we want to make sure that those 10 years from graduation to the time that I get married, we have as much fun as possible because it ends at the time I say I do. I mean, church, can you honestly say that, that our confidence in the institution of marriage or even family is actually on the increase now, uh, today more than ever before? It's decreasing at tremendous rates. I mean, you, you think about like schools and universities, we're yanking kids out of public schools today because we don't have the same kind of confidence that we did in the past, that their values are going to align with our values, and homeschools on the rise, private schools are on the rise. We don't have a whole lot of confidence in our education system that it's going to be doing and teaching the things that we all believe are true and, and, and valuable. I mean, even baseball, I can't even like, like, base, like the Astros, I'm a huge Astros fan. Like, I, like, what are you talking about here, right? Like, I can't even dress my Astros anymore. I was all pumped about 2017, and it's not happening anymore, right? Like, like it, it's, it's, on the, it, it's hurting right now. 73% of young adults under the age of 30 say that most people will look out for themselves most of the time. Think about that, church. 73% people say that most people only look out for themselves most of the time. 71% said that most people will try to take advantage of you if they're given the opportunity to do so. Massive, massive cynicism. 60% say that most people, generally speaking, simply cannot be trusted. Church, I mean, think about it. Look around, like, who do we trust anymore? And here it is. The church isn't immune either, is it? I, I, trust me, this is coming from a person who's given my life to serve the Lord and the church. I love the church. I, I, I'm giving my life to the church. There's no one I love more, want to support more. I have rose-colored glasses on so much of the time because I'm optimistic about what God will do in this broken, decrepit institution. But that is exactly what's taking place, is it not? I, I mean, can we honestly say that credibility of the church is on the rise? 2017, Huffington Post came out with an article called, called Exposing America's Big, Biggest Hypocrites, Evangelical Christians. And of course, part of me is sitting there going, ouch, that can't be true, right? And then you're reading an article and you're like, yep, that's actually true. And it's talking about how the mid-80s, it was people like Jim Baker and a lot of the televangelists and stuff. There's half a dozen or so and all the different scandals that broke then and all the trust, uh, untrust that kind of developed in the mid-80s. Then it was the Catholic priests and that scandal. Then it was the Independent Baptists over in Fort Worth and that whole scandal that came out. Then it's the Houston Chronicle and the SBC and 700 documented cases of cover-up of sexual abuse inside different churches coming from the highest levels of leadership possible over and over again. Then it's celebrity pastors and forerunners of the faith, people that we look up to, learned from, grew from and stuff that turned out to be bullies in the pulpit, bullies in the workplace, bullies of people that are trying to leave their church. They shame them. They go after them over and over again. Church, people were going after members that are saying, hey, I don't have confidence in leadership anymore and we need to leave this place. And we're bullying and shaming them to keep them from leaving. Are you kidding me? Church, like, where in the world is integrity gone today? Where, is that even a pursuit of ours anymore? Like, who can we look at and say, you know what, I have profound amount of trust for what's going on in this section of our culture today. I mean, is it any shocking that we're having a hard time passing on the faith from one generation to the next? I mean, literally less than 85% of non-believers under the age of 30 years old believe that most Christians are hypocrites. 
In other words, they're looking at your life and they're saying, hey, the things that you say you believe aren't consistent with your life. 85%, overwhelming majority of people under the age of 30 that are not a believer are looking at your life saying, yeah, yeah, you don't really get it. You're inconsistent with the things that you believe. It is still to this day the number one reason stated why people are leaving the church today. Like, is it any wonder why we're having such a hard time passing on the faith from one generation to the next? Where in the world is integrity? So the question that I've been asking all week long is I'm looking at this passage and I'm sitting there kind of going, like, like, would we be having the credibility crisis that we have today if this section of scripture were true in our life? If we were actually able to wake up every single day and put on the things of love, get clothed with things like compassion and kindness and gentleness and humility and love and patience and peace and gratitude and all these things and put off things like anger and malice and wrath and greed and lust and sexual immorality. Church, like how in the world, would, how much of a difference would it make even in this own church body if we were able to wake up every single morning and put on the things of love? Like what would it make for you personally, your credibility situations, your home, your workplace, your personal testimony and stuff, what difference would it make in your personal life if you were able to put these things on and your life was defined by these qualities over here and you were able to say old, you were able to say no and kill the things of the old and say yes to the things of the new and put on the things of love. Church, I'm telling you, like what we're talking about here today, like there's a lot riding on our ability to apply what's being taught in this passage today. And so you and I may not be able to do a whole lot of insti about institutional credibility or anything like that, but I guarantee you, you do have the ability to apply these things to you today. You have the ability to put these clothes on and for these things to be true of your life today. And so this morning, all I want to do this morning is really just tell you the same thing that Paul says to us here in this text. When he says, today is a day that you have to stand up, you need to go to your closet, and you need to get dressed you need to clothe yourselves with a brand new set of clothes. It's been hanging in your closet all day long. It's been there for a really, really long time. They're brand new clothes. They're really nice and clean. And you need to put those brand new clothes on. It's time to say no to the old and yes to the brand new. And so let's just jump into it. We're going to be uh, beginning really in, in verse 3 or verse 12 of chapter 3. Uh, but it's the same image that we talked about last week. That's what Paul's talking about. It's this idea that, hey, you've got to say no to the old. You've got to put off the things of the old. You've got to take off your old clothes before you put on these brand new clothes. You don't layer brand new clean clothes on top of old nasty dirty ones, right? You just don't do that. You don't come in from a pickup game of basketball and be like, all right, babe, let's, let's go out for a date. And then you just throw on a little button up over, uh, over your clothes. Like, it's not what you do. Uh, even if, um, I was thinking about this, back in the college days, I used to carry around, I probably shouldn't admit this, um, I used to carry around dryer sheets in the pocket. And just like in the middle of the day, we'd just kind of be like there, the college days, you just kind of, you kind of rub it around, and you're like, we're all good, fresh and clean, smell like Tide, right? Uh, it's not what we're talking about. Like, there's, these two things are incompatible. The old life is incompatible with the new. It's kind of like wearing white after Labor Day. You don't do it. You don't do it. It's kind of like wearing burnt orange ever, right? You don't, you don't do it. And so, I'm just kidding. Sorry, I'll repent of that one again next week. So, um, <laughs> Sorry, my man. Uh, Steve is out of here, bro. You can sit down, man, I promise. Love for Texas. You guys beat us a lot, so, you know. Um, but what he's saying is there, these, these, these things are incompatible. The old is incompatible with the new. First, you've got to remove the old before you put on the new because the new is incompatible with who you used to be. Now that you and I are in Jesus Christ, there's a brand new spiritual reality that is true of us. Like there's a brand new spiritual reality that marks who we actually are. Back in chapter 1, verse 13, we talked about this in, in the very first week. He has delivered you from the domain of darkness, and he has now transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved son. In other words, before Christ, you and I lived in this domain of darkness. In other words, we had no understanding 
understanding of who he is. We had no filling of the Holy Spirit. We did not know what he called us to walk in. We had no understanding of God's grace. It was me, 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 trying to justify myself, create my own sense of righteousness. That was this domain of darkness that we were living in. Now that you and I are in Jesus Christ, he has taken us out of that domain of darkness and he has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. So you and I, now that you are in Jesus Christ, you have a brand new reality that is true of you. You have a brand new identity that we walk in. He talks about in verse 22 that he has reconciled us in order to call us holy and blameless before him. Not because we are holy and blameless, but because that's who we are now that we are in Jesus Christ. He has made peace for us through the blood of the cross to the point that he now looks upon us who are covered by the blood of the lamb and calls us holy and blameless before us. Therefore, we have a brand new identity and a brand new standing before him. Peter says that you and I are now a royal priesthood. In other words, we've been brought into a brand new kingdom and we're now considered royalty before him. Church, that's what he's talking about. We have been given the right to be called sons and daughters of the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords, right? We are co-heirs with Christ, he talks about in Romans 8. We are ambassadors of a brand new kingdom and a brand new God in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Church, that's who we are. So why in the world would we ever entertain and continue to live in all these other things, all these different qualities that are completely in compatible with who you now are in Jesus Christ. It's why he says you've got to take off the old and then you've got to put on the brand new. And you've got to put on the brand new by fixating all of your thoughts, all of your affections totally and completely upon Jesus and letting him wash you, letting him cleanse you every single day so that you can put this brand new wardrobe on which he has perfectly provided for you in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so the first thing that I want to talk to you about today is that we, you and I have everything that we need to dress well in Christ. I mean, that's what we're going to see here in this passage. Like, don't miss the imperative in this passage. Like, he's saying, hey, do this. Clothe yourselves in compassion and in kindness and gentleness and patience. He's assuming this is something that you and I can do. In other words, you don't have to live with this attitude of defeat that says, hey, I'm just a wretched sinner. I can't do anything. I am completely I can't do anything in, my, in and of my own flesh. Like, I can't do anything in myself. I'm not helpless. We're not passive in this entire thing. You don't have to have a fatalistic attitude that says, hey, I'm never going to be able to change. Or I'm never, ever, ever going to be able to grow. Like, like, like the whole point of this passage is that you and I can be dressed because he's already provided everything that you need. Church, he has already conquered sin and death in your life. He's already broken the strongholds that tied you to the former domain of darkness in which we once lived. Like he's already purchased this brand new wardrobe for you and I to put on every single day and for us to walk in. He's already filled you with the Holy Spirit. He has already given you his word, the, the divinely inspired word of God that we can know him by. We can see what these things look like in, in Jesus Christ. Where It's not mysterious. He's not, he's not far away. He has provided everything that you and I need in Jesus Christ for us to dress well in him. I love the way Howard Hendricks talked about this, but uh, my favorite professor ever before he passed away and uh, Prof. Hendricks would just put it, he said it like this on the first day of class. I was, just, I was just wrecked to the core, first day of class at DTS. But he just went off just about the beauty of God's word in a way that only Prof. Hendricks could do, just expounding on he has given you his word. Can you believe it? You can know him. You can meet with him every single day. He's given you the indwelling Holy Spirit. And he just goes off about that. And literally about an hour passes by, and then he's just like preaching and preaching and preaching. Then all of a sudden he just simply just drops it and he says, Church, what is your excuse? What is your excuse? for not thriving in a relationship with him? Like what is your excuse for not being alive in Jesus Christ? 
He's literally given you every single thing that you need to live the victorious life right now. What in the world is your excuse? He's given you the word. It's never going to grow dull or void. You're never going to get bored with it. You're always going to be discovering brand new mysteries that are here in his word. He's given you the indwelling Holy Spirit. He's never going to leave you nor forsake you. He's filled you. He empowers you. He teaches you. He seals you for the day of salvation. What in the world is your excuse for not thriving and walking in victory with him every single day of your life? And before we start looking at this and thinking, hey, you know what? Kind of sounds like a little bit of self-sufficiency, a little bit of self-help or something like that. D.A. Carson is going to call it this. He's going to say, everything that we're about to talk about is called grace-driven effort. This isn't self-sufficiency. This isn't, hey, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, which it's a really weird thing to think about. I don't know how you do that. But um, it's not, that's not what we're talking about. He's talking about everything. He's calling it grace-driven effort. And what he's going to say is that without grace-driven effort, our natural tendency will never be to drift towards godliness. This is not how we're wired. He goes on and he writes about it in his book, and he says, people don't drift towards holiness. It's not our natural drift. It's not where we're going in and of our own selves. We're not drifting toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people don't gravitate toward godliness, prayer, and obedience to the scriptures, faith and delight in the word. We drift toward compromise, and we call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience, and we call it freedom. We drift toward superstition, and we call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control, and we call it relaxation and rest. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking that we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness, and we convince ourselves that we have been liberated. And so he goes on and just talks about how God came in, and he gave us grace. And it's not just a grace to be free from the penalty of sin, but it's a grace to break us free from this natural drift and for us to move forward in a brand new direction. In other words, church, what he's talking about is every single day, we have the capacity, we have the opportunity to make this decision. As I go to my closet and I put on my literal clothes, I go to the spiritual closet and I say, Lord, by your grace and by your mercy, would you help me put on love today? Would you help me dress in compassion and in kindness and in gentleness and in patience, and in mercy, and in forgiveness today. Whatever that thing is, I haven't been wearing it this past week. I need to bring it out of the closet. And God, by your grace and by your mercy, as I see it play out in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, would you allow me to clothe myself in these things today? Out with the old, in with the brand new. God, let this be consistent with who I now am in you. I have not seen it in a, in, in a, in a normal example in my father, my mother, my, my family around here, but God, I can look at you every single day and I can see what these things look like. God, by your grace, would you come and help me clothe myself in righteousness and in love today? He defines it for us clearly in this passage. It's what he's doing. Verse 14, he kind of summarizes the whole thing and says, hey, you know what? This entire thing, this entire list of virtues that I'm talking about, it all comes down to love. And that's what he's saying. He says, over all these other virtues, he says, put on love. Wear it like a jacket. This is the main piece of your outfit. Put on love. Wear it. Why? Because love is the thing that binds everything else together in perfect unity. In other words, love is supreme. Love is the umbrella that captures everything else. The culmination of all these other qualities we're going to talk about are the things that come together and they define what love is. So put on love because that's what's supreme in all things. In 1 Corinthians 13, he goes off all about it again, but Paul goes a little bit further and he simply says, hey, you and I can be the most spiritually gifted people on the planet. You and I can have all the knowledge in the world. You and I can have faith that's able to move mountains. 
You and I can, can, can have the knowledge that's able to understand every single mystery in the world. Like you can even preach like Billy Graham, you can lead like Bill Hybels, but if you don't have love, then you actually have nothing because it is that central to what he's called us to do. It's that central to who, how he's wired us to receive and, and what, what he's wired us to be. Like we have to have it. It's why parents can buy their kids everything that they've ever wanted in their life and their kids are gonna be still wandering and, and hurting and in pain, depressed, if they've never learned how to express love towards the kids that are in their home. Church, is that central to what he's wired us to do? Like we can have everything in the world, but if we've never received love from the people that are supposed to love us the most, then we're gonna be crippled in the end. Husbands, like you can be great at your job and you can be the greatest provider in the world, but if you've never learned how to love your wife, then it's never gonna, make a, it's never gonna matter at all. It's not gonna matter. There's gonna be brokenness. There's gonna be disparity at home. There's gonna be tension. There's gonna be dissatisfaction if you've never learned how to put love on. Singles, like you can look for it everywhere in the world. You can look for it around every single corner, but if you don't actually learn how to love, then whatever you go and find, it won't actually work out in the end. Church, that's what he's talking about. You can have all the beauty. You can have all the knowledge of love. You can talk about it. You can blog about it. You can wear the t-shirt. You can do it all. But if you don't know how to love, then none of it's gonna matter because love isn't really love until it does the things that love does. That's what it is. It's not an ethereal feeling. It's not just an affection. It's an affection that begins in here and then makes its way out there and it does certain qualities of love. It's what um, Mick Jones from Foreigner, oh man, um, it's what he's talking about when he wrote the song, I want to know what love is. You know what I'm talking about? I've been jamming out to that song in my head like all week long. I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. I want to feel what love is. I want you to show me. You know what I'm talking about? Okay. Uh, I think I butchered those lyrics a little bit. Is that wrong? Um, I was reading an interesting story from him this past week. I wanted to make sure that that wasn't a shady lyric or anything I didn't know about. But he was talking about... Um, he was talking about in the story like what, was, what motivated the whole, the whole song. And he's just talking about how he came out of this very, very dark season. He'd just been divorced. Everything in his life was just kind of upside down as a performer and an entertainer. Like you spend your entire life seeking love and affection from all kinds of strangers you'll never, ever meet. Right? That's just the nature of being an entertainer. He's just talking about how I was so confused and I never, I felt so empty inside. And he goes, it felt like a supernatural intervention when, he just, when I just received these lyrics to the work, to the song. And he's by no means a believer by any stretch of the imagination, but he's like, I just felt like that that's what I needed to know. I wanted to know what love is. I wanted to see it. I wanted to feel it. I wanted to experience it. Church, it's exactly what Paul's talking about right here. I want to show you what love is. I want you to feel it. I want you to know what love actually is, that you're not deluded by the ways that you talk about it, or you think that it just happens once a year on February 14th or something like that. Like, it's not just a hallmark holiday. It's something that you actually practice, and it's something that you do. And so he begins and he simply says, hey, clothe yourself in this way. Every single morning, make the decision to go to your closet and put on love. Clothe yourself with compassion and with kindness, with humility, gentleness, patience, and even forgiveness too. Like that's what love does. It goes every day and it just puts these things on in a very intentional manner. And you know, I'm, I'm gonna argue that, you know what, it probably all begins here with this attitude of humility. It's not explicit here in this text, but I'm just looking at this entire list here going, it just seems like humility is the posture that produces all the other things. Is it not? Like, isn't humility required to be able to love like this? I mean, if you don't have humility, then how in the world are you going to put on gentleness when you've been offended? Like, how in the world are you going to lower yourself and, and come back with a kind, gentle response when you've been offended if you don't know how to lower yourself every single day? Like, how in the, like, if you don't have humility or, or like, how are you, or what about patience here? 
Like, like, if you don't have humility, how in the world are you going to be patient when you want what needs to happen, you want that done yesterday? You want that your spouse to change yesterday? Like, how are, how are you going to do that if you're not in the practice of lowering yourself over and over again? Or compassion, like when it's going to require a ton of your time and your money to be compassionate. How, are you go, how do you go and be compassionate if you don't first have humility? I mean, humility by definition is this ongoing disposition that allows you to not think too highly of yourself. That's how it's defined. It is an ongoing disposition that allows you to not think too highly of yourself. In other words, church, like there's a way to think highly of yourself and there's a way to think too highly of yourself. You know what I'm talking about? Like there's a way to have self-esteem and confidence and stuff and there's a way to take it to the extreme. And so we're not talking about falling into depression. We're not talking about self-loathing. Uh, we're not talking about self-persecution, any of those kinds of things. Like there's a way to think highly of yourself and there's a way to think too highly of yourself. The way to think highly of yourself is to look at scripture and to see everything that is true of you in Jesus Christ. Everything that he has said is true about who you actually are. You are an image bearer of God. You are dearly loved by him. Every single man, woman, and child has been given inherent dignity and value as such an image bearer of God. You are worth dying for. Hope you'll understand, like, you are worth dying for. You are worth sending your son, his son for. You are a child of God, Scripture says. You're a friend of God. You're an essential member of his body. You're a citizen of heaven. You're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of doing good works. They are a new creation, a royal priesthood, co-heirs with Christ, an ambassador of Jesus, holy and blameless before him, safe and secure in the Father's hand. Church, like that's how you think highly of yourself. You cling to the things that you know are true in God's word. The way to think too highly of yourself is to quickly forget that none of those things came by anything that I ever brought to the table. The way to think too much of yourself is to quickly forget the fact that I have all those different things had nothing to do with what I brought to the table. I was lost and I was dead in my sins. Yes, all of that true. Even in the, in, the, in the way that he loved me, even in dignity and value, I was lost and I was dead in my sins. And in the middle of that place, God in his infinite love sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come and to live the life that I could not live. He willingly went to the cross. He suffered, bled, and died as a substitute for my sin. He conquered sin and death by walking out of the tomb alive so that any and all who will simply come to him in genuine saving faith may have eternal life with him now and forever and ever and ever again. Church, I brought nothing to the table. I brought nothing to the table except a, a posture that says, you alone are God and I'm not him. That's all it was. Jesus, you are the son of God. You are who you said that you are. Like your, the, what you did on that cross and in that empty tomb accomplished something for me that I could not accomplish for myself. Like that's what brought me salvation and life in him. I brought nothing to the table. The way to think too highly of yourself is to quickly forget that subtle fact that he's the one that accomplished everything on your behalf. Church, it's a disposition to think the things highly of yourself but not too highly that I'm not able to lower myself at any given moment for the long-term good of people that are around me. So what we're talking about here, it's Philippians 2, 3, when Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility, consider one another as more important than yourself. Church, have you ever been in a social situation where you know the people you're around are more important than you? Like, I promise you, you have, right? I, um, if you've ever been, to, you ever been to a wedding where you weren't the bride or the groom, <laughs> right? Do you ever notice how, like, when, when you walked into the room, like, people didn't stand to their feet? Right? They didn't say how beautiful you looked or any of that kind of thing. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't, I don't know. But uh, the, uh, you ever notice that? Like, uh, we understand that that entire day is about the bride. Like, even the groom understands that, right? <laughs> like, I'm not the most important person in this room. It's her. It's the one who's walking down this aisle right here. 
Like you understand when that person walks in the room, they make a bad joke, everybody still laughs. You defer to them. You open up doors for them. They need a little bit longer in the room, then you give them a little bit more time. They want a snack, you go and get them a snack. Like you don't throw mud at them or anything like that. You keep them clean. Like everything about that day is in deference to that person, which is exactly what Paul's saying right here. In humility, consider other people like it's their wedding day and you're a guest on the invitation list. Treat other people like this is all about them and that you're there to serve them. You're there to love them. You're there to laugh at their jokes. Like you're there to help them get whatever it is that they need. That's exactly what he's talking about right here, church. Like that's what humility does. And in case we're confused about it, we, we've never really seen this played out. Like he defines it for us again in Jesus Christ. While we fix our thoughts and our affections on him, these things become true of us. We clothe ourselves in this every single day. Paul talks about this in verse six. He says, Jesus was by very nature God. That's who he was. Church, he wasn't like another man. He wasn't another prophet. It wasn't some guy that was just simply born into history. He was the eternal king of all kings, Lord of all lords that decided to take on flesh. But here's the deal. He did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped or used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself even further than that, even further than just being humbled by taking on flesh and becoming human. He humbled himself even more by becoming obedient to death, even death on a sinner's criminal's cross. That's how humble our God is. Church, like that's what humility looks like. It is God in the flesh, fully God, deciding to take on flesh and become fully man, choosing to lower himself for the long-term good of those who would ever believe. Church, is Jesus on the night in which, he be, in which he was betrayed in John chapter 13, when he washes his disciples' feet. And you remember this whole entire scene. He gets down on his hands and his knees, nasty, dirty, grimy feet. And he, and he doesn't just wash the easy people like Peter, James, and John. Like he even washes Judas' feet too. Like Judas comes by there and like he's washing the feet of the guy that's just sold him out. The guy that's gonna sell him out for 30 pieces of silver, a friend of his who walked with him and honored him. He thought he was close with him. Like he's still gonna wash his feet. Church, how in the world do you do that unless you're the definition of love? And that's just what love does. Love lowers yourself and treats other people around you like it's their wedding day, church. Like that's just what love does. Like it forgives the unforgivable. Judas did something that was unforgivable and Jesus is setting up the stage saying, you know what, even that, I'm still gonna give you grace. I'm still gonna wash your feet here in this time. Like that's what it does. It forgives the unforgivable because that's how I've been forgiven in Jesus Christ. It's Peter in Matthew chapter 18 when he comes to him and says, okay, Jesus, you talk about forgiveness a whole lot, but like how many times are we supposed to actually forgive our brothers and sisters? Seven times, that's a lot. You remember this? And he's like, no, to Peter, uh, a little bit more than seven, buddy. Try seven times 70. He's like, oh, good, 490. No, 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 infinite amount of times. I think that's 490. Anyway, he's like, no, 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 infinite. The church, that's how much we've been forgiven in him. You keep on forgiving. You forgive and you forgive and you forgive. And yes, it always hurts, which does not mean that there's never a time for boundaries. There's never a place for safety and space or any of those things. But it does mean you go the extra mile and you have this disposition that says, because you're a brother or sister in Christ, because of who you are, because of the dignity and value that has been given to you by God, I will go the extra mile and I will have this disposition that is ready to forgive you no matter what's coming our way. Church, that's what love does. It's, it's gentle and it's kind. It's got definition. It, it does gentle things. It does kind things. Like it's not even close to being the abusive, it's not even close to being abusive in any, any possible way. 
It's not abusive in the way that we talk or in the way that we behave towards one another. It doesn't use forgiveness as a trap to keep you enslaved in an abusive situation. You know what I'm talking about here? Hey, you just need to forgive me. You just need to forgive me. You just need to forgive me so that I can be enabled to keep you in this abusive situation. You know what I'm talking about there? That's not what love does. It's not what love does. It's gentle and it's kind. It's got definition. You don't get to throw out, hey, you need to, what about grace? What about forgiveness here while I continue to keep, this in, keep you in this abusive situation? It's not what it does, church. It does not rip you apart with their words. That's not loving. It doesn't rip you apart with their words. It doesn't threaten you with finances. It doesn't hold that over you. It doesn't talk down to you like you're a child. It doesn't intimidate you with power. It doesn't make fun of you behind your back. Because it's just not what love does. Church is kind and it's gentle. It's got definition to this thing. Church is patient, meaning it's not quick to run away when things get hard. Are you, here? Are you with me on this? Like that's the definition of love. It's not quick to run away. In other words, it's willing to go the extra mile and have the difficult conversation in hopes that we can actually reconcile this thing, which doesn't feel like it could be reconciled in the, in the moment. It's the definition of love. It's not quick to run away from a valuable friendship or a prodigal child that's in rebellion. And it's definitely not quick to run away from a spouse that you've committed before God that you're going to love him until death do his part. It's not what love does. Love is willing to go the distance. It's willing to say, you know what, I want to endure in this thing. I'm going to submit myself to, uh, to counseling and to godly wisdom around me. And I'm going to consider for a second that maybe the marital problems that we're having today have something to do with me. And I'm going to go to this counselor and I'm going to go to the community group. And I'm going to go and I'm going to pray before God and say, Lord, search my heart because there seems to be a whole lot of discord in this family and in the things that are taking place here. And Father, I don't want to be naive to the fact that this problem that I'm seeing here, it may be me. God, would you search my heart? Would you uproot the dirt that's inside of here? And God, would you take it away from my life that there may be peace and there may be gentleness, there may be kindness, there may be grace and compassion in this home again. Church, that's what love does. It's full of compassion. It actually cares about the people that are in your life. When they are hurting, Compassion means that I enter into their pain and I'm willing to hurt alongside of them. When a brother or sister that you may or may not know, even in this church, is in a hospital and they're fighting for their child's life, this morning, compassion demands that we go there with them. Emotionally, our thoughts and our prayers, we enter into that room with them and we say, that burden is not gonna be yours alone. I'm gonna carry it with you. I'm gonna go before the Father in prayer. I'm gonna fight on your behalf that Elias would come back to life. Compassion says you won't be in it alone. I see your pain and I'm willing to go and I'm willing to enter into that pain to help you carry it and leave and uh, that you could be, uh, have a little bit of peace in it yourself. I love the word um, that he uses here. Splagnizomai is the word for compassion. And so it's a beautiful word that just mean, literally means to be moved in your guts and your innermost being with empathy for the plight of another. It's what compassion is, to be moved in the deepest core of who you are with empathy for the plight of someone else, whether you know them or not. Church, it's it's what you felt in your stomach when 9-11 happened and you're looking at that TV and you're going, I don't know anybody in that building, I don't know any of their families, but, but there's something that just got ripped out of my stomach and I'm grieving over the pain that everybody else in the world is experiencing to this day. Like that's compassion. And it's compassion that moves you to do something. It's what Jesus is talking about in the parable of the Good Samaritan. When he sees this, this person who's bloodied and broken laying on the side of the road, 
The priest walked by them and did nothing about it. The seminary student walked by them and did nothing about it. And the Samaritan, who is a rival to that person that is laying on the side of the road, sees the blood, sees the bruises, sees the brokenness in this person laying on the side of the road. And it says, moved by compassion, the good Samaritan comes over and bandages up their wounds, gives them food and water takes them into the town, spends his own money to make sure that that person's gonna be well cared for. Church, that's what compassion does. It's a definition of compassion. It's not just, hey, I'm feeling something inside. Well, that was awesome. Peace out, see you later. It's feeling something inside. It's this disruption that's taking place in my soul that compels me to go and to do something on that behalf. Uh, it, It compels me to get up and do something. It's Jesus, Matthew 14. He's looking at the large crowds and it says that he's so filled with compassion that he feels compelled to go out there and to heal the sick. He's looking at this brokenness. He's looking at the large crowds in the next chapter and he's so filled with compassion because they're hungry. They've been following him around everywhere that he feeds 4,000 people with some bread and some fish. Like he's just so filled with compassion. It's Jesus in Luke 15. When he's telling this story about this father who has this son, And the son is like so self-absorbed and so cruel that he asks his father for his inheritance a little bit early so that he can have all this money, run away from home and go do his own thing. And you remember how the whole story goes. The father's broken over what's taking place. No one wants to receive that kind of request from, from their kid. Dad, I don't care about you anymore. I don't love you anymore. I don't want to be in a relationship with you anymore. The only thing I care about is your money. Can I have my money right now? Can you imagine if your kid came to you one day and that was the conversation that you had? The father's hope, heartbroken by the request, but he, nevertheless, he gives him the money. And you know how the whole thing plays out. The kid goes and it says that he squanders his wealth, everything that he was given that day, on things that only prodigal kids would go and do. The story continues, and a few years later, he finds himself in this place where he has no more money whatsoever. He's actually hit rock bottom. And it says that he's looking around at the pigs and the food that the pigs are eating, and he's jealous of the food that those pigs are eating. That's how bad it is for him. And he says, in the middle of hitting rock bottom, he's looking around, and that's when he finally realizes, you know what, I've got to go back, and I've got to go ask Daddy for help. And so he practices a little speech, and he finally gets up the courage, and you remember how it goes down, he goes back, and he's, he's, he's muscling up the courage to go see Dad, but he never gets a chance to go and do his speech before Dad, because it says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And it says that his heart was so filled with compassion, not anger, not rage, not I told you so, not hey, you, 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 you know what you did to me so many years ago, not any of that kind of stuff. He's so filled with compassion that it says that he runs to his son and he throws his arms around him and he begins to kiss him over and over and over and over again. The son's just looking there going, what in the world are you doing, dad? I've got a whole speech like I haven't even done that and it's not even enough. The kid tries to go into the speech and he tries to say, Father, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven and all these things. I'm not even worthy to be called your son. But the father's not having it. The father jumps in there and immediately he he interrupts him and he calls to his servants and he says, Servants, quick, I need you to bring me my best robe. I need you to put it on my son. I need you to put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it because we are gonna have a party tonight for the son of mine who is dead is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. Church, that's what compassion looks like. It's splagnizomite. It is this churning inside of your soul for a son who's finally coming home. Even the one who deserved the things, deserved all kinds of distance. He's looking at that return home and he's filled with compassion so much so that he throws a party. Church, like how much time passed before he's ready to throw a party? He's like, bring out the disco ball on the floor. Like I need the food, I need the drinks, I need everything out here. Bring out the posse, bring everybody out to the table. Like we're having a party, my son has finally come home. That's what compassion is, church. 
And what he's saying is that we get to come to our closet every single day, look at the heart of the Father, look at what he's done on our behalf, and enter into that compassion to the point that we can clothe ourselves with such an attitude every single day. Not just that we feel empathy towards somebody else's pain, but we feel empathy towards uh, in such a way that leads to us going and doing something about it, church. Like, that's what love does. It's got definition. Like, it's got hands and it's got feet to it. Like, it patiently waits for the prodigal to come home. It forgives the unforgivable. It cares for the lost. It runs to the broken. It bandages wounds, it wounds and it feeds the hungry. It looks around at surrounding apartment complexes and says, these kids have nowhere to go in the afternoons, and so we're gonna create a program over here where we hang out with them and help them with homework, and we play games with them, and we do presents, and we spend time with them, and we love them. We're gonna love this community over here. And so people that are knocking on doors and paying attention to what's happening in the landscape of Dallas and saying, you know what, there's an enormous refugee community here that has no idea how to live well here in Dallas. And they're going to these doors and saying, you know what, I'm gonna be a part of this relationship. I care about the pain that you're in. I care about the lives that you came from and that you're rescued from. We're gonna help you with English. We're gonna help you with job skills. We're gonna help you gather and develop a fellowship over here. We're gonna teach you how to do things here in Dallas as best as we possibly can. Church, that's what compassion does. It's Trisha Mills and the whole team that's out here on Wednesdays feeding the poor, feeding those who need help, praying with them over and over and over again, church. It's what it does. And men, you need to hear me on this, like compassion and all these different things we're talking about, they're not just feminine qualities. Are you with me on this? Like this isn't, hey, men do this and women take care of compassion. Men take care of hard work and women take care of love. It's not what we're, there's no gender specificity going on here. He's saying, men, you put on a heart of compassion too. It is Jesus looking at the son that is finally coming home and his heart erupts with joy. And he wraps his arms around his son and he kisses him repeatedly over and over again. That's what compassion is, church. It's the dad who's paying attention to their kids and isn't so fixated on their work that all they see is the bottom line or a growing bank account or a bludgeoning 401k or whatever it may be. It's, it's the dad that's looking at their kids come home from work, come home from school and saying, you know what, I can see that something's different that's going on. There's pain, there's depression, there's sadness, there's cutting that's going on all the time. I, I'm seeing you chase after an identity that is unattainable. And it's the dad that's paying attention to that that's coming in. And it's going to say, son or daughter, mine, let's come and let's sit. I see the pain that's going on in your life, and I want to enter into that pain with you. I want to tell you the things that are true. Not only do you have a heavenly father who loves you and has given his son for you, but you have an earthly father, too, that loves you and is willing to give everything that he has for you, too. Church, that's what compassion is. It's the husband that, that looks at his wife and says, hey, I hear the cries that are going on. I hear the pain, and I hear the dysfunction and the things that you're trying to say. And I want to go and I want to surrender myself to the Lord and make sure that I'm doing everything I can to help bring us together. It's a husband that's willing to listen. Church, it's compassion. It's entering into someone else's pain, whether I understand it in that moment or not, recognizing that it's exactly what God has done for us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When we were running away, when we were lost and dead in our sins, when we squandered our wealth and everything that he's given to us, God kept looking for us. And when we finally decided to return home, his heart exploded with compassion. And he just ran to you and me. And he wrapped his arms of love around you. And he brought you back into the full church's compassion. It's love, it's gentleness, it's patience. Twice as every single day, you go to the closet and you put on the clothes of love. Church, there's a lot riding on our ability to apply what's here in this passage. I'll tell you this about 
17 years ago, I was sitting in Bent Tree Bible Church, brand new here to Dallas, and Pete Briscoe preached this sermon that I never forgot. It was really the first time that I heard that love had hands and love had feet, and it wasn't just this crazy emotion that we have. And he challenged us essentially to do exactly this, to put on love. And I remember going back at that time, I was working at Sewell GMC, and I was going, okay, I was in car sales for a couple years before seminary and ministry, the whole thing. And um, I remember going back saying, okay, Lord, what does this look like in the workplace? And I really didn't know a whole lot, but I just remember going back and just praying and saying, okay, Lord, let me put these things on. Let me have compassion. Let me have love for my coworkers, the people that I'm serving today. And I started going in small and just kind of telling people and just saying, look, you know, I like to pray. I'd love to pray for you. If there's ever anything that I can pray for you about, I'd love to take, take that with you and you can share it with me. And every now and then some people would do that. I'll never forget the day uh, I come into the office and there's this grown man who's much, much older than I was at the time. And uh, it was one of these things where you could see the brokenness and the destruction on his face. He wasn't paying attention. He was forlorn. He was just, it looked like he was about to explode. And I came up to him. I was like, hey, Chris, um, it's like, man, I can tell something's going on. You want to talk about it? I'd, I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to, I'd love to hear what's going on. And sales are going on around you. And he just, he just looked down and he said, yeah, I'm going to take you up on that. And so we walked around the back of the building and no one else was around. And this grown man just burst open in tears. This isn't like me who's prone to cry a little bit, but like someone who doesn't do that, just broke open in tears. My wife is leaving me. My kids hate me. They don't want to talk to me. I've ruined the entirety of my life. And he just wept like a child right there. Church, I'm telling you, the world needs compassionate people. The world needs people that wake up every single day and say, Lord, out with the old and with the new. By your grace, I want to put love on today. I want to walk in it. I'm going to fix on you all my thoughts, all of my affections. I want that to become true of me today. Church, the world needs people that will put on love today.